Go ahead, if you will, and take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to focus for a few moments, verses 19 through 23. Paul is writing, and as we've seen over the last couple weeks, he has emphasized the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ over all things. When he's writing to the church at Colossae and he's trying to confront this heresy that has come to them and that they've begun to believe, he, he reminds them that it all goes back to who Christ is. And, and I would just say to you, the foundation of everything that we are, the foundation of who we are, we are as a church is Jesus Christ. It all has to go back to him. And Paul says here that Jesus is the foundation and that everything has to submit ultimately to him. What we have seen is that Jesus is the creator and that he is supreme over all of creation because he is the one who actually made all things. So everything has to bow to him. But also last week we saw how he is preeminent or supreme over the church, that he's the head of the church. So notice how he does this. Paul says, Jesus is over everything, over all of creation. But then he comes down and he narrows it for us so that we'll not forget. That means over us, the church. He's the head. He's the supreme one. And tonight, you come back and, and you finish out this hymn or poem that Paul has put together or perhaps he's borrowed from someone else. And what you see is that he rem reminds us that this Christ is also over the world. Some of you say, well, that's redundant. You, you've told me he was over creation. You told me he was over the church. Why are you coming back now and telling me that he's over the world? Well, I'm telling you that because I want to follow Paul's outline here. <laughs> Paul told us that. But also, Paul wanted to remind them that not only is he the creator, and not only is he the church head, but he is the one that has, has preeminence over the world because he himself is the one who reconciles the world to God the Father. And I want you to see that. Okay, so verse 19, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. So again, a statement to me of the deity, the divinity of Jesus. He, he just reminds us, he's already told us this, but he says, it was the Father's good pleasure. It pleased him that within Jesus the fullness, the fullness of deity, the fullness of divinity, that it abided in him. It abided in Jesus. It dwelt in him. That word dwelt means that it set up permanent residence. Literally, that's what the word means, is that it was a permanent residence. It was a home within Jesus. What I would say to you, that means that Jesus was not God one day and man the next, he was always the God-man when he was here on this earth, right? He, he didn't kind of go in and out. It, it, it's interesting that if you look at some of the early Gnostic teachings, those heresies that were there, some of them would say, well, some days Jesus was God and some days he wasn't. In particular, there was one theory that said at the baptism is when Jesus became God. And at the crucifixion is when the Christ spirit left Jesus. Think about that just a moment. They said only for that time, you know, for, from his public ministry, was he truly the Christ? Was he divine? 
Paul says, that is nothing more than spiritual baloney, right? He says, that is not the case. The deity of, the deity of God himself was within Jesus, and it dwelt there permanently. It made a home in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God. Don't miss that in this. Jesus is divine. It took up lasting abode. I love the way one translation gives it. It took up lasting abode within Jesus because of the Father's good pleasure. Now from 19, verse 20, it tells us now the reconciling work of Jesus, the one who is the God-man, the one who was expressed all of the fullness of the deity. It says that by him, that's Jesus, that all things were reconciled to himself by him, to the Father, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, to be reconciled. Now, this is kind of deep stuff, isn't it? When you're kind of talking about all of the world to be reconciled, that everything, heaven, earth, all things were reconciled to the Father through Jesus. Well, the word reconciled means what? It's kind of like a change, uh, a change in attitude to, to bring two warring parties together. Like, if I want to reconcile somebody, I'm going to bring them together. There has been some type of rupture in the relationship and I'm going to somehow take those which are at odds and bring them back into harmony. That's my hope. Let's say that I had to reconcile a couple of people here. Let's see, who, who do you, who, Don Hogan, who do you have something against in this space? <laughs> There's somebody. Don, this is your opportunity we can see restoration and reconciliation. The church would be so excited. You love everybody. There's a place right here at the altar for you when I get through. Right, right, right there. Okay, right there when we get through. Okay. <laughs> Let's say that there are two people that they have some kind of issue. When you reconcile them, you bring them back together. And, and it's more than just a truce that you hope that they will enter into, you hope that they will enter into a peace, a harmony. You'll see that word peace used later on in this passage. You hope to bring them together. The word here for reconcile is an intensive word. It, it, it means that they are completely reconciled. They are completely changed. They are completely brought together. And as I was working through these translations and working through the, the verse itself, verse 20, it says, by him to reconcile the all things <laughs> is the way one translation would give it. Like the all things. In other words, it is completely encompassing of everything that you could imagine. Like all of creation, all of the world. That's the reason I use the term world here is because it's like everything. I use it to speak about Everything that seems to stand at odds with the God above, that Jesus was able to bring all of this together in an all-encompassing scope and to bring 
reconciliation. Let me try to use a few other verses to talk about how Jesus does this and why there is a need for this. The idea that he brings all things to reconciliation, all creation, all the world. First, maybe I need to say that Paul here is not teaching a universalism. What I mean by that, Paul is not saying that everybody will ultimately receive the salvation, the gospel salvation that we see in the New Testament. He's not saying that. Unfortunately, there will be people who will be lost. It is one of the reasons that we keep preaching and teaching, right? Is because we know that there are consequences to our sin. And we want people to know the true good news of Jesus Christ that can save them from their sin. But the reality is not everybody's going to be saved. So that's not what Paul's teaching. Because I, I can look all through the New Testament. I can look at Paul's works and he would tell us that not everybody's going to be saved. So that's not what he's saying. It's not some universalism. It doesn't mean that one day that everybody's going to have another chance at salvation. There was a guy, he actually still is on the speaking tours. He's not pastoring anymore. His name is Rob Bell. I don't know if you've ever heard of Rob Bell. Um, he used to do something called the NUMA series. And it seemed to be a pretty good work in many ways of the Holy Spirit and all of that. I guess when I, Scott, when I was down at Zachary, and I may have even gotten on a high horse there for a while with Rob Bell, but he had a book to come out entitled Love Wins. And I was really intrigued by it. I saw all these people talking about the book. And so I went down, and now you can tell this has been some time ago, and you can tell how old school I am. I went to a bookstore to buy it. As soon as it came in that day, I was there in the bookstore and I wanted it and I wanted to read it and I wanted to see what it said because at the time he was one of the most popular pastors and speakers in our nation. He was influencing and still I think influences a lot of younger people. So I said, I want to read this. So I got there, I got my book, went up and was checking out and the little lady that was checking me out, she said, I'm so excited about this. She said, this book is going to change everything. I said, you think so? She said, yeah. I said, have you, have you read it yet? She's like, well, no, but I think it's going to change everything. I, I've heard all about it or so. I said, well, that, that, that's cool. I said, I, I'm not sure about it, but I'm going to read it and I'm going to see. And, and he posited in that book, he, he, he wrote and believed in that book that one day that all individuals would come to some type of salvation and redemption through Jesus. Even after they've died, that someday that there would be some kind of reconciliation that would come and people would be saved. And he talked about a lot of other things. He denied the existence of, of a hell and any type of punishment and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I read through it and and really struggled in many ways as I read through it and heard his take on universalism. I am grateful that he and his church parted ways. Because I'm going to be honest with you. If I began teaching that kind of stuff, you ought to part ways with me. 
Because that is unbiblical. There is nothing about that that we find in Scripture that is to be borne out that there is some type of universalism. That there is, listen, there is no type of biblical evidence that says you get another chance after you die. No type of biblical evidence. So anyway, he now is on speaking tours and um, you might see him interviewed by Oprah every now and then. And seriously, he was kind of in that realm and doing some different things. And I, I bring that up to say to you that when you first read this, and if you're not careful and you're not trying to rightly divide the word of God, somebody like a Rob Bell could really, they could really lead you away. Because there it says, all things will be reconciled, everything. Heaven on earth, everything will be reconciled to him. Do not ignore the rest of the biblical witness. And do not take this passage out of its context of what the scripture tells us. What does it mean then? What does it mean to say that all things will be reconciled? It is the idea that even creation itself will come into restoration. That even all of the world, everything about it, every fiber of its being, that everything will eventually come into submission to the one Lord, to the one God above. Romans 8 gives us a little bit of this. Remember, Paul writes the same letter. Romans 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Paul said that all of creation itself longs for the coming of the Lord Jesus when he will put all things right and there will, there will be a renewal even of creation itself. Creation bears the marks Creation bears the marks of sin. It's hard to imagine that, isn't it? I mean, there's some beautiful places on this planet. God has given me liberty to go to some of them and see some of his beauty, some of the nature. Uh, I went to, uh, Leslie, it was a couple years ago, we went to the Grand Canyon or so. It was amazing. Sedona, some of those areas out there, it was unbelievable. I shared this uh, a few uh, months ago that my, my father-in-law went. My father-in-law, who has never been pricked by any type of emotion that I can think of. <laughs> Maybe some emotion, but not constructive emotion. Would you say that, Leslie? Maybe. <laughs> and when he looked at the Grand Canyon, he cried. He cried. I wished I'd been there. I'd like to have taken a picture. I'd like to would have remembered that for some time. He never cries on anything. 
the beauty of it. It's beautiful. But don't you forget that even in its beauty, it bears the marks of sin. Look at Genesis. It says that that great garden, it, 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 begin, it becomes this place as, as they're cast out. They're, they find thorns and thistles and creation itself is impacted by sin. Don't you forget, sin has radically impacted everything. Everything. Creation groans because it's ready to be renewed and reconciled to the Father. The picture in Romans is that creation eagerly awaits. When I studied that passage some months ago, I remember that word meaning that it's like creation stands on its tiptoes, like eagerly awaiting, like trying to catch a glimpse of the revealing of the sons of God. You've done that before, trying to see something? No, Nude, you've never stood on your tiptoes, but <laughs> few of us normal-sized people, <laughs> blessed-sized people, maybe we have before. Maybe at a parade. Oh, the Disney parades. You're looking. And it's like creation looks for that moment where it will be reconciled. It's the same idea that Paul is talking about in Colossians is that he's going to bring all things together. He's going to renew it. Everything will be subdued. Everything ultimately put under his feet. Oh, he already has authority. Don't miss that. He already has lordship. But what are we told? That one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Everything will recognize his kingship. And it will be a time of renewal. Isaiah, I think this is what Isaiah describes to us. When Isaiah in chapter 11 says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand into the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the day. When all things would be reconciled, brought back together. No more natural disturbances, tornadoes, hurricanes, floodings, whatever else. But creation itself will be reconciled. And what is marvelous in this, what's amazing, is how is this done? Well, the peace is made through the blood of his cross. You're telling me that the death of Jesus is what eventually brings about the reconciliation of even creation itself? I'm telling you it is through the lone, sufficient sacrifice of the Son of God 
that all things are able to be put in its rightful place. There is reconciliation of bringing these who are at odds, bringing them together. So he is the world's reconciler. But he also says, hey, just so you know, he is your reconciler. I love the way Paul does this. Jesus is over all creation, supreme, preeminent. Ah, he's over the church as well. Jesus, he is the world's reconciler. He is preeminent over the world. Oh, but don't forget, he's your reconciler. Love the way he brings it back, and he makes it so personal. Verse 21, he says, and you. He said, you, you, I'm talking to you. Those of you who are believers in Christ, he said, you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He said, what he has done is reconcile the world. All of creation is eventually going to bow. It's going to be renewed. It's going to be an awesome moment. But don't forget, you were reconciled by the same way. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, you who were alienated, who were enemies. That tells you how radical our situation is outside of Jesus, is it not? I mean, think of it. Most of us, listen, most of us would never have considered ourselves enemies of Jesus. Even when we were lost, we wouldn't have said that. At least those of us who grew up in the Bible Belt, nobody would have said that. Nobody would have said, yes, I feel like I'm an enemy of Jesus. But what are we taught in the Scripture? That if we are in our sins and we have not come to Him in faith and trust, we are truly alienated, we are hostile, we are enemies of the great God. That's what the Scripture teaches us. That's what Paul says here. That you had a mindset set against Him. No, I wasn't against Him. But were you for Him? Because if you're not for him, you're against him. Never forget, a young man there at Zachary came up to me during the invitation one time. His name was Tommy. He looked at me and he said, Brother Reggie, I've never thought I was against God, but I've never been for him. And I want to be for him today. Never forget that. And I said to myself, you know what? Most of us wouldn't say we're against him, but in truth we are because we have, if outside of our relationship with Christ, that is when we're in our sin, we are aliens, we are enemies, we are hostile. He said, that's where you were. I love that, by the way. I had never noticed that until I'm just going through this. You know, sometimes I do have spontaneous thoughts. Some of you probably think, these are all spontaneous thoughts. But man, how, how, how good is that? You once were. <laughs> I, sh I should have done a message maybe on what you once were. Because there's something there in that truth, I think, as I'm reading through this. What we once were. Every one of us once were. Alienated. 
We once were enemies. We once were uh, affected in our mind by the wicked works. Yet now, that's what we once were, but yet now, yet now, we, he, that is, has reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death. Through the cross, we have been reconciled to God the Father. You and I were on so different ends of the spectrum from God. And we could have never gotten there on our own. So Jesus came and he represented God to us and he represented man to God. And he grabbed God by the hand and he grabbed us by the other hand and he brought us together so that we could live in reconciliation, so that we could live in relationship. He was the peacemaker and he offered himself as the example, as the avenue through which that reconciliation could take place. And then just look at this finally. So that he could decisively present you holy. Means set apart. Different. Blameless. Without flaw. Without any type of blemish, the word means. It's that idea of the sacrifice. That we are standing before him without any type of sacrifice. That shows us here. That he's speaking not just of us morally, he is speaking more of our position in Jesus. Because all of us, hey, all of us got flaws. Come on, help me out here. All of us got flaws. Even the pastor, he got flaws. But in Jesus, I stand before the Father, not in my flaws, but in his righteousness. So I'm able to Stand there, blameless, without blemish, and above reproach. In other words, no charge can be made when I'm standing before him. You know, the old devil, he, he, he's, the, he's the slanderer, right? He's the accuser. He can bring charge after charge after charge. And what it says here is, when I stand before the Father, he can bring all the charges he wants. There's no charge that will stick to me because of who Jesus is. Because of what he's done. Because how he has cleansed me and justified me. I can stand before the Father now and I guarantee you one day when the glorification takes place, when we stand before the Father, we can stand in that confidence of Jesus and what he has done. If indeed you continue in faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. You have been secured. You have been settled. He said, you know you can keep going because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. He is supreme. He is supreme. He is preeminent over all of the world because he will reconcile all of the world. And he already, in effect, has done that through the cross. And he has reconciled us through who Jesus is and what he's done. May we ever be grateful for that. May we praise him. May we celebrate him. Because he is our reconciler did something we could have never done for ourselves. He has brought us in to an intimate 
close relationship with the Father. It has been through him, his sacrifice, and his blood alone. May we offer him the praise we, he so deeply deserves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this night. Thank you for the scripture. Oh, how rich it is. How rich it is. What a reminder we need. God, so often we can forget of the importance and significance of your sacrifice. Lord, we can, I think in our churches, sometimes hear about it and talk about it so much that we almost pass over it. God, you get our attention through your scripture and through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And I pray that's happened here tonight. God, I pray. Yes, I pray. That we would give you thanks and praise for the reconciliation we've experienced through your son, the Lord Jesus. For bringing us together in this relationship with you. And God, I look forward to the consummation of the world's reconciliation, of the world's coming back in harmony. God, I pray tonight that if there's one here who is lost, that you would save them and bring them into fellowship with you. Lord, perhaps tonight they're here and they say they hadn't been necessarily against you, but they hadn't really been for you either. And God, for those of us who have declared our allegiance, may we continue to be steadfast, settled, secured in who you are and continue to give evidence of it each day. We pray it now in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?